Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas, thoughts, or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families without it being lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode 77. We are proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. Check out our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, which takes you over to all of our friends over at the XPN Network, talking with tech, exceptional leaders, and a soon-to-be fourth uh, SLP-centered podcast. Also, make sure you head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Production. And we always want to hear from you, 614-681-1798, or email speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. I'm excited because for the first time in the last two, maybe three weeks, Michelle and Michael and myself are all back on air together. Guys, it's so exciting to see you. Michelle, welcome back. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. It's been a crazy couple of weeks for all of us, I think. Woo. Michael, two weeks in a row. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> nice, little, nice little streak going here. I like it. We, we're the Cal Ripken of SLP podcast. We are, I think we've now done this show for an official 30 weeks in a row. That is a new record for our show, guys. That is very impressive. I like it. There you go. I mean, I know speech science being born kind of threw off the record for a while. Oh, <laughs> uh, my wife and I are talking about a third child and I just, uh, I like, I like being able to afford things. And guys, let me tell you something. If you ever, ever want to decide if having more children is a good thing or a bad thing, you should host a six year old's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese with the Munch Madness Mayhem Band of Robotics playing in the background and Charles Esquire Cheese himself walking around talking to all the kids, I almost lost my mind today. I, I One positive, Matt, if you had it at a different place, you guys didn't have to clean up, right? That, that is true. That was the most wonderful part. There were all these children banging on the table and leaving messes for myself not to have to clean up. And this weekend was weird. I watched the Kentucky Derby. I don't know if you guys watched the Kentucky Derby. And for the first time in the history of the Kentucky Derby, the best horse finished the race in first and did not win 
because evidently it's illegal to cut off other horses. I did not know that. Yeah, he was here. disqualified. That's been the talk all around here. I'm living in. I was gonna say I'm living down in the there bluegrass in horse state. So, uh, yeah, that's a the first time in Kentucky Derby history. And I have nothing going on therapy wise. So we'll kick it over to Michael in Philadelphia. What's been going on with you this past week? Uh, pretty much just uh, the same old stuff over at work. Uh, just things are really getting busy for the for the summer months. Uh, lots of new intakes, uh, some new SLPs coming on board. I uh, was able to kind of uh, relax with some some old friends this weekend. Saw the Avengers movie, which was amazing. So it's all I'm all about that that work life balance. Whatever it takes, right? That's right. Whatever it takes. <laughs> Whatever it takes to be a good SLP. Whatever it takes. And, Mich- and Michelle, what good news do you have for us down in Kentucky? Hey, well, I am headed to that hippotherapy course in a couple of weeks that I'm super pumped about. So I had to do a prereq course for that online um, on equine skills to make sure I check the box there. Um, Wait, like horsing? Yes, Horses? yes. Equine? Oh, okay. Hippo means horse in Greek. Oh, I thought you said hippa. Um, hippa. You said hippo. Hippo Got therapy. So H-I-P-P-O therapy. So using equine movement, but for speech, PT, or OT. So, hey going to go to my level one training for it uh, later this month in Nashville area, Nashville, Tennessee. And then uh, the other exciting news is it just came out. It's been promised by Congress for a long time about potential reimbursement for military spouses for licensure since we have to move every few years. And the Army has just come out this month in May to say that they will retroactively reimburse licensure for people who have applied for a new license in the last year. Woo! So that includes me with my Kentucky licensure, guys. I like it. Getting money back, man. Hey, I'll take it. Hey, I have a question for you for your equine therapy. Okay. Omaha Beach was the Kentucky Derby favorite. Did you see that it got scratched last week due to an entrapped epiglottis? Yeah, it was respiratory issues. Yep. Yeah, that's so crazy. Can you do speech therapy on a horse? Um, you know. Or could you do speech therapy while you're sitting on a horse? Is that what the therapy's for? It's for the patients uh, using the equine movement as part of therapy. But um, you're not the first person to think that. I went to the hippotherapy conference, which was in Colorado two years ago. And um, some of my husband's coworkers thought that I was doing, because he explained it as horse therapy. They thought I was doing therapy for the horses, <laughs> that I was like horse whisperer or something. So they were very Michael, confused by what I was going to. Michael, I would love to be able to see you go to your private practice with a pony. That'd be freaking awesome. <laughs> I would love that. Michelle, I, I love it. I love the idea of therapy animals, and I would I would love to have a therapy animal in home care as well. But, like, that's so cool with a horse. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see if I can find someone to interview from the American Hippotherapy Association. As you should. That's how we work. And speaking of interviews, I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to sit down uh, digitally and talk talk to Carly Stoltenberg. Uh, she's reco- She has been recovering from Guillain-Barre syndrome. She's also a speech language pathologist and a supervisor and works for EBS. 
she has been recovering and got back into her role as an SLP. Uh, the interview was so great that we're going to break it down into parts one and part two. So part one will be today. Uh, part two uh, will be next week. Uh, also today, we're going to talk about how often should your children be outside to develop good language. Tennessee is taking care of its professionals. But first, from the journal Speech, Language and Hearing Research, uh, the article Cognitive Loads Affects Speech Motor Performance Differently in Older and Young Adults. Uh, this was done by Megan uh, McPherson, and the purpose of the study was to determine the impact of cognitive load imposed by a speech production task on the speech motor performance of a healthy older and younger uh, adult. And a kind of an interesting article, uh, I know, from me working with high school kids and definitely with older adults. I'm, I'm looking over it here now. I didn't oh. get a chance to read this one. I'm sorry, Matt. <laughs> Yeah, it's this okay. uh, has dead silence from Mike and I as he waits. <laughs> That'll be edited down. It'll be fine. Well, this this study here is really very closely tied to the executive functions that I do a lot of work with. So the term cognitive load really basically is a, a different phrase for the executive skills, which is response inhibition, selective attention, uh, uh, ability to r remain involved. I refer to it as persistence and working memory. So they're really, uh, they're really com uh, comparing those two things, the ability to use the executive skills combined with motor speech tasks. And they're looking at the uh, stability and timing of speech when these executive skills are really being used uh, in full force. So, so those, those are really the two things at play here. Have you all ever d done this group tasks? Because those are quite a challenge to do. It's where, just so the audience knows as well, but it's where they'll have you either read the word, the print word, so mm -hmm. you're reading what the name is, but it's in different colors font, or you have to say what the color font is, and the idea is to do it as quickly as possible, but as accurately as possible. So you have to attend to not just what the word is that you're reading, but the color that it's printed in. So I pulled up the Stroop task, and let's see. Uh, yellow, wrong, oh, green. Oh, I'm already messed this up way, <laughs> way. Oh, I'm done. I'm going to put the link on this. This is the SciToolkit.org. Uh, you know what, though? I find it interesting because I always talk to a lot of my patients uh, when I work with home care and talk about uh, sometimes I have patients that have dementia, but it's not the progressive dementia. And they concern themselves because they say, I used to be able to do 25 tasks at the same time, and now I can do three tasks. But they forget that besides those three tasks, they are trying to monitor 25 new medications a day. They are monitoring pain. They are using ADL assistance with walkers that I'm not really surprised that it showed that the more stress on the cognitive load, the less likely they were able to do the, the speech motor tasks. It, it makes sense to me. I mean, I, I know this is just a short summary of the article. I'd love to read the article a little bit further um, to see the study, but um, I'm, I'm right with you, Matt. It, it makes sense. <laughs> so in terms of motor speech functioning with this study, it's really looking at articulatory coordination, variability, and movement. So when that frontal lobe of the brain, that prefrontal cortex is being overtaxed due to several executive skills being used at once, 
we see once again, which is something I'm always talking to parents about, the combination between uh, speech and language and executive functioning. Uh, there's, there's so many times, like myself being an executive function specialist, I have parents ask me, oh, but you're a speech pathologist. How, how, like, how are those things combined? And executive functioning really at, at its core is an internal language issue, an issue of internal language disorganization. And I'm, I usually compare it to the language aspect of speech and language, but this study right here is comparing it to the speech aspect. So, Michael, when you are working with an executive functioning uh, student, and I don't really get to work a whole lot with executive functioning, um, what is it that you're trying to improve? Well, that really depends on that. That really varies student to student. Uh, okay. The, 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 the stereotypical ADHD executive function student is a student with an incredibly high IQ uh, if you give them any basic IQ test, they're going to score well above average, yet they have difficulty with uh, sustained attention, non-preferred task initiation. Uh, there's zero evidence of self-talk, self-positive, self-directed talk, uh, the inability to forecast themselves into the future, achieving a skill or completing a task. Uh, it's a basic internal language processes that you and I uh, use daily subconsciously without even recognizing, uh, and they simply are not doing that. They, in, in terms of being, uh, they have difficulty with cause and effect thinking, uh, and they are now versus not now. So they're so in the moment, they have very poor planning skills and ability to do things today that benefits them tomorrow. So are you trying to lessen the the load or are you trying to teach strategies or kind of both? Uh, it's really all about strategies. It's really all about strategies and having them have success to the point where it becomes habit and they're building these skills and becoming more independent. When it comes to learning executive skills, it's all about independence where they are not being prompted. They're not just like with all speech and language goals. It's all about building independence where there's no more fade, where there's fading prompts. And that's exactly how it is. And when they're in, able to, do their homework on their own, do their laundry on their own, do responsibilities on their own, uh, initiate conversation on their own, make friends, maintain friends. That's when you know that uh, the executive skill is becoming independent. And Michelle, you have your background in psych, right? Mm -hmm, my undergrad, yep. Have you messed with this Stroob uh, test with any of your patients before or no? In speech pathology, no, I haven't. Uh, we oh, did okay. it in undergrad, though, for for psychology. And then it was part of a test that I did, um, you know, where you could volunteer as a, a test subject for extra credit for the grad students in psychology. So, uh, so I've been through the, as the participant and the, the examiner. Sorry, I'm trying to do this Stroob test again, and I'm taking so much more time to do that. Um, I don't know. I just you're trying. I, you're look at you multitasking. Trying to I do this. I'm trying to over here, and it's, and and it's causing my brain to go sideways. And... I just keep coming back to how I, I, how I try to explain it with my patients, and and this feels so similar to, or the results of the study feel so similar to when patients tell me they just know the word they want to say, but they don't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. Even though I know that's an aphasia thing, but I feel like. 
reading through this study, it kind of reminds me a lot of what my patients tell me, where they feel like they just are unable to do something, even though they know they should be able to do it. Well, and I, it, you saying about your home health patients reminded me of some of the, the nursing home and, and home health uh, PRN that I did and talking to a patient in particular about um, that it's not a bad thing to use a planner and to use lists now and that sometimes you have to decrease the mental load a little bit on yourself so that we can keep track of things and we can remember things. And I know it's not the same thing as aphasia, but there is so that research on, I, I was just talking to a couple other new moms and even new dads, but especially the new moms. And I swear there really is something to that mom brain piece. Of mm -hmm. I have such a harder time keeping track of things if I'm not writing it in my planner or on my to-do list nowadays. I don't know about you guys, but I have therapy brain where I literally wrote an email and used the wrong patient's name while sitting in with the patient to explain to something to his nurse. It caused a ton of confusion because I was like, uh, Jim needs this. And they were like, who's Jim? Aren't and I was like, <laughs> yeah. uh, aren't you supposed to be with Joe right now? And I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Just take that way. Whoops. Uh, we want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and email us your thoughts on this and what experiences you have from there. It's speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com, or give us a phone call or text 614-681-1798. Or, and what is, I was going to say, and what is the social media hashtag? Find us on Instagram, hashtag SSPod, and speech underscore science. You guys rock, by the way. Uh, uh, Mike, I didn't tell you this. A couple weeks ago, I named Michelle the speech science social media manager. Yep. And then she said that she would be the assistant manager if you become the manager. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Hey, I, The assistant to me, the regional manager. <laughs> there you go. Yes. I like that. Well I, done. I gave you a shout out, Mike. I didn't take full credit on that. So. And I, I love all the people who listen to the podcast and then will put things on their own Instagram. Mm -hmm. Shout it. We've had that a few times now. We had SLP Runner. We had another woman who was uh, who was doing something and listening to the podcast or whatever. <laughs> another runner. Another runner. Crafting, crafting, yeah, and drinking yeah, crafting, beer crafting and, exactly. Crafting and drinking beer. But I if, love it. But if you post a picture and you do ha hashtag SSPod on your picture, we'll see it. And we will shout you out. We'll we'll repost your picture. So please let us know if you're listening to the pod. I also just found out on Facebook that there were people commenting on our posts. And over the weekend, I decided that I should respond to people that posted things in the last eight weeks. So sorry about that. Yeah, we got to catch up on those. <laughs> Whoopsie. Make sure you head over to iTunes as well and rate and review us hey guys tennessee is doing something awesome there are some states that will have a professional or an occupational privilege tax and tennessee has recalled that 400 dollars occupational privilege tax uh, resulting in 22.3 million dollars of a tax break for the 15 different professions and guess what speech pathology is listed as one of those awesome or professionals that is getting that tax break. How awesome is that? This is awesome. This is absolutely fantastic. I have seen other SLPs on Facebook, whether it be speech pathologists at large or the school SLP Facebook page, and I've seen them posting about this Tennessee thing where they have to pay $400 a year for a, a privilege task 
to be a certain li- certain licensed professional. And you look at this list, you have uh, athlete agents, accountants, audiologists, chiropractors, dentists, engineers, podiatrists. I, I do not understand why SLPs are on this list. And it's, it's, it, I don't understand why they had this in the first place. I think it's, it's ridiculous to, to, to tax an SLP, someone who goes into this field and works with children and benefits people. And I'm, this is a very, very good thing. Anytime legislation is passed to decrease the burden on an SLP, I'm all about it. And the list of, of this tax, the list of the, you just named Mike, plus the other mm-hmm. ones that I'm looking at, it seems random to me. There's no, you know, accountants, a lot of, a lot, optometrists, and, pharmacists, yep. veterinarians, real estate brokers, speech pathologists, like, well, it's all done to get money. That's the thing. Republican Senator Brian Kelsey of Germantown said that the idea that earning a living as a privilege is insulting to those professionals. However, physicians, uh, osteopathic physicians, investment advisors, broker dealers, agents, etc., will still have to pay a licensure tax. And we're not talking about just the licensure fee. Uh, I know to work in the schools in Ohio, I have to carry a school license. I had to carry my SLP state license. And then if I like to continue working, I had to carry my national accreditation. And if all three of those hit at the same year, I'm looking at about eight, nine, $900 in, in fees and an extra $400 a year tax does not make it seem like anyone cares about what we do. I, I love the idea that Tennessee has revoked this and it looks like Texas is looking to do the same thing. Yeah, and some of us have to carry our own liability insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have you have mileage, you have gas, you have buying materials. There or are like so- you, Mike, multiple state licensures. Same with exactly, me. exactly. So there's there our our money is constantly being spent just for just so we're able to work. And the fact that this is being revoked is a wonderful thing. And let's be honest, a lot of the professions on this list make a hell of a lot more money than SLPs do. Mm-hmm. So anytime the financial burden is lifted on, on an SLP and they're able to work and they're able to, to, to make the money they deserve, this is great. Now, Michelle, did you have a professional tax when you were in Texas? Not that I was a, not a privileged tax that I was aware of, but the licensure fee was definitely higher than other states I've worked in. Gotcha. But Texas also does not have state income tax. So I think that they kind of make up their money other places. Because I'm reading this thing and it says that Texas should catch up to Tennessee by removing their amusement tax, which is addressed on services such as personal training, fitness and home therapies. Hmm, okay, and I do. I like do... that therapy is licensed under an amusement tax. Yeah, I I don't think that necessarily applied for me. I worked PRN okay. for a home health, but that was it. Hmm. So this brings me to my question for you guys: Is how do we address this when we're looking at new jobs, or if you work with a union, how do you address trying to get through with what we do is different? or significantly different than what say coworkers who have to carry their same two or three licenses as well. Can you say that question again, Matt? Yeah. So like, for example, I'm thinking, okay, let's say you work in a school and you carry your national licensure. You have to carry your state teaching licensure, and then you got to carry your state SLP license. 
how do we explain that to our coworkers? Let's say if we're trying to tell the union, hey, we would like reimbursement for this extra licensure. How do we explain why that's so important to our coworkers? Or is that a battle that we shouldn't even take on? I mean, I think we just have to show them, literally show them the numbers. And I pay 900 bucks, stop it. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not going to say they'll always listen or reimburse it, but, but I think we just need to explain ourselves and we need to advocate for ourselves. There's definitely a lot that, that goes into it in terms of us billing for insurance or, or, or working at multiple schools at once sort of thing. So there's definitely more to what we do compared to what your typical mm -hmm. teacher does do. But I absolutely agree. There's way too much red tape and there's way there's, uh, we have to do an FBI clearance, a fingerprint clearance. We have, we have a million clearances and it's just, it's insane. Fair enough. We want to hear from you head over to our website. I don't know. I didn't have another good way to transition out of that. So I'll just end with fair enough. Other than Matt is wearing a red nose right now. I, there's a reason behind that, and I'll say that when we get back. But we want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com, or text us, 614-681-1798, or what's the social media hashtag? SSpod. SSpod. You got hashtag it. Hashtag it just like Justin Timberlake and Jimmy Fallon did. Exactly. Hey, coming up after the break, it's Carly Stoltenberg. Her Facebook page is GBS Carly Recovering Like a Champ and Looking Good Doing It. Her story is awesome. It brought me to tears. Literally, I had to like pause while crying in the middle of this interview. We'll be right back. You're listening to Speech Science. <laughs> Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hott, and I'm excited today to be joined by Carly Stoltenberg, uh, a speech and language pathologist for the last 24 years, a regional director for EBS Healthcare, and an adjunct professor for Rio Salando. Did I say that right? Rio Salado. Rio Salado College, also a clinical associate professor at Arizona State University. And the reason she's on our show today, she's also a survivor of Guillain-Barre syndrome, a peer mentor for others that have GBS and other rare uh, illnesses, and also a state and national convention presenter. Uh, we seem to be interviewing people that present way more than I do, which makes me feel like I need to up my game. Carly, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Not a problem at all. And don't feel bad about the lack of presentations. <laughs> I honestly was not a presenter until this happened to me. Oh, really? And yeah, I was actually um, asked by ASHA to write an article for the ASHA leader about the patient perspective. And from there, I received a lot of email responses to my article. And I you know, was contacted by university professors and uh, state um, speech and language conventions. And they asked me to present my perspective. Oh, very cool. 
So before we get started, let's get your background. Where did you go to school? Why did you become a speech and language pathologist? Why did you get into this field to start? Well, I am originally from Southern California, uh, native born and raised. I went to college, got my undergrad degree in speech and hearing sciences at UC Santa Barbara when they still had a program. In fact, I was the last graduating class from that hey. program. So go gauchos. And then I moved to Arizona, um, gosh, over 25 years ago for grad school. I went to Arizona State University, got my master's in communication disorders and worked in the schools for 12 years as a public school speech pathologist in preschool and middle school. And then for the last- Bless you. <laughs> thank you, I love it. It's so funny, I honestly think that those areas are hidden gems. I love preschool and I love middle school and high school, like the elementary, not my favorite. So God bless the rest of you who do elementary. I do high school. I worked one year in a preschool and thought I was gonna quit the ooh, field. Ooh. And, and anything as far away from preschool children I could get. Well, now you have a preschool child of your own, so. I, I think that was the problem, was I was spending all day at work and at home talking about the farmer on the on the farm and the cow in the barn that I went, I can't anymore, I can't do this. No, I completely understand. So I apologize. So you you worked in preschool and, and middle school? I preschool and middle school, and then I currently have a caseload in a high school. Um, in addition to being regional director for EBS Healthcare, where I provide support and training to others in the field. Um, I provide support and training to clinicians in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Southern California. And um, I just, I'm a, a mentor for clinical fellows, which I love. I've been doing that for many years. It's one of my passions is to help um, to mentor other people and to learn as much from them as they learn from me. So you've spent most of your career working with patients, working on communication, yes. and I think you're, you know where this is going to go. I do. But one day you just, I, I had to look up what uh, uh, Guillaume Beret, the GBS, looking up the symptoms, and I didn't realize it can happen within hours up to two weeks until from start of symptoms to full-fledged Yes, disease. and what I'm learning, um, as is with most illnesses, that it presents differently in different people. And of course there is a typical course of progression, but essentially it's an autoimmune disorder that's usually triggered by an illness. In my case, they think mine was triggered by the flu vaccine. And I was always completely healthy, um, very fit, physically fit and mentally fit. And you know, one of those type A personalities, burning the candle at both ends, traveling a lot for work, traveling to, you know, be with an out-of-state boyfriend, single mom, two young children, and I actually had been skiing in Taos, New Mexico about two days before I started getting some symptoms. And when I came back to Arizona from New Mexico, I just was really, really tired and very achy, and I attributed it to just skiing and being old and, you know, achy. <laughs> and um, the problem was is that it just, I just didn't feel like myself. And I went to my primary care physician on a Friday, knowing the weekend was coming, and I just said, I'm just not feeling well. I, I can't definitively tell you what's wrong with me, but I just don't feel well. And he sent me home and said, no, nope, nothing's wrong. You might be getting something, nothing's wrong with you. So I went home, and the next morning was a Saturday morning, and I woke up and still didn't feel great, so I went to the emergency room, and 
told him I'm just really in a lot of pain. I, I can't describe it. It's just a, a very achy type of feeling. And I don't know what's wrong. And they did a bunch of lab work, sent me home. And then that night, I my kids were at their dad's house and I was just not feeling well. So I called one of my best friends and just said, hey, I'm afraid to be alone. I don't know what's wrong with me. Can you come over and spend the night? So she came over to my house and he went to bed and I was in my room and just couldn't get comfortable. So I took a bath and took another bath and took some Advil and just couldn't get comfortable. And then all of a sudden my feet felt numb, like they were asleep. So I kind of started stomping around my room to wake my feet up. And then all of a sudden I just had this overwhelming feeling that I was dying. And again, I can't explain why I felt that way, but I just knew something was wrong. So I went in and woke my friend up. It was 4.30 in the morning. She took me back to the ER where they recognized me from earlier in the day and they took me back to triage. And the doctor came in and he said, are you a heavy drinker? And I was like, no, why do you ask? And he said, well, your lab work came back with elevated um, enzymes in your liver. And I said, well, nobody mentioned anything about lab work that wasn't right when I was here this morning. So at that point, I just started feeling like I was having a hard time putting sentences together and just felt horrible. So they admitted me. And fortunately, the doctor that admitted me had seen Guillain-Barre in the past. So he told me he thought that I either had MS or Guillain-Barre syndrome. And they did a three-hour MRI to rule out MS which I have no recollection of. And then the doctor said, hey, we're gonna go ahead and start treating you as if, we, as if it's Guillain-Barre. And so they put a port in my neck and started doing one of the known treatments for it, something called plasmapheresis, where they removed my plasma and then you know, basically cleaned it and then um, cycled it back through my body. But the only way that they could definitively diagnose me was by doing a spinal tap, which they, they did the next morning. And it ended Oh, so this was all within that same. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a couple of hours? Are we looking at a day or something you at know, this point? The timelines for me, in terms of how many hours, is hazy. Okay. But I do know that I went into the emergency room about 4 30 in the morning, and it was probably around nine o'clock at night that they were kind of doing all the, you know, the MRIs and things like that. But they didn't do the spinal tap until the next morning. Okay. And that's when they did it and said, okay, you have elevated. Um, proteins in your cerebral spinal fluid, so you have Guillain-Barre. Did so, you know? Did you know what Guillain-Barre was at that point? You know, I had a little bit of knowledge of it. I remembered hearing about it in grad school, right. but the reason why I didn't know a lot about it is because, in most cases, a speech pathologist is not necessary. You need OT, hmm. you need PT, you need lots of other things. But with Guillain-Barre, it starts in the feet and then progresses upward. But it usually plateaus at around two weeks um, and doesn't usually make it past, you know, your legs and your arms. Um, but for me, it continued to travel up. So it paralyzed the, the muscles that I need for respiration and for feeding. So I ended up on a ventilator. Um, I ended up with feeding tubes. So, um, but it certainly humbled me and did put a lot of things in perspective because I remember, you know, in my early years working in hospitals and talking with patients, their families about feeding tubes. And, you know, I had no frame of reference. I had never been sick before. All I knew was what seemed logical to me was that 
having a non-surgical procedure like an NG tube was less invasive and therefore, in my words, better than the G tube. Um, so I, those, that was usually my recommendation is, you know, start less invasive. And what I found out as a patient is that my feeding tube got clogged very often, my NG tube. They were pushing a lot of stuff through there, um, including my meds because I couldn't swallow. So it was getting clogged and then it wasn't providing the nutrition that I needed. So not only was it not providing my nutrition, it was the most painful procedure that I had while in the hospital. And I had everything. Like I mentioned, I had the port in my neck. I had IVs, I had a rectal tube, I had catheter. I had it all. But the most painful procedure going in and coming out was that NG tube. And I had to have it reinserted a couple of times because it was getting clogged. And actually the second time after they put it in, um, I was on a ventilator. And when they pulled out my ventilator, they accidentally pulled out the feeding tube. And I was like, you're not putting that thing back in. I'm sorry, you're not. But at that point, I was down to 84 pounds. So obviously we had some concerns about nutrition. So they ended up putting the G-tube in, which they did it surgically. I was you know, put under sedation when I had it. So I don't remember that, but it ended up not being a big deal at all for me, who has always been healthy and you know petrified of <laughs> medical procedures. It was so easy, and you know I just I think you don't know what you don't know, and that's one of the things that really has hit home with me is that especially early on in my career, I was so afraid to admit professional limitation because I didn't want people to think I didn't know something, and then therefore. By default, I thought they wouldn't have confidence in me. But what I've come to find out is nobody ever knows everything in this field. And you have to be willing to admit professional limitation. And you have to be willing to admit that you might need help. And so that's my recommendation to everybody else in this field that is that there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know something. I think the best clinicians in this field, the best doctors, are those that say, hey, we just don't know, but we're gonna do everything we can to find out. We'll bring other people in, we'll you know, collaborate professionally. And that's what I found with all of the nurses, doctors, CNAs, therapists that I had, the ones who are willing to admit professional limitation who, and who are willing to collaborate with others were my best doctors and therapists. If it's okay to ask, what was that like because they tell you it progresses from the feet upwards. Right. And I'm guessing it's not a you go to sleep one night and wake up and there's something not working. It's probably a slower progression that you felt it, it the way or was it overnight? For, for me, the night that they admitted me, I was able to walk in on my own two feet, albeit I was wobbly. My friends said I looked like I was drunk. <laughs> um, but by the time I woke up the next morning, I had to go to the bathroom. And as I started to get up to go to the bathroom, I realized I was paralyzed. So it happened that quickly. And then my arms kind of, when I first got there, I was able to raise them a little bit, but in time, those became paralyzed as well. So, you know, when all my friends came in to kind of help with my situation and say, oh, you know, we're speech pathologists, we're gonna come and help. <laughs> they were recommending high-tech communication devices and visors with laser pointers and what they didn't understand because again you don't know what you don't know is that 
I was so tired and I fatigued so easily that anything required a lot of movement. You know, the movement that I had was in my head. I couldn't move my arms or my, I couldn't isolate my fingers to, you know, point to anything. Um, but I also had double vision. So eye gaze boards were not effective for me. And so all these high tech things they wanted to do with me, I just was so sick and so tired that I didn't want to do those things. And so I kind of developed my own system of communication where I would just lay down. Well, I was always laying down, but <laughs> I would close my eyes when I wanted to, to communicate. And that was like the clue. Okay, Carly wants to say something. And then they would go through the alphabet. And once I got to the letter I wanted, then I would open my eyes. And even that was a system that needed to be tweaked because, you know, I had my, my parents had moved they live in California, but they had moved to Arizona to help take care of me. They were here for six months. And my dad's 80, my mom's 72, and they don't know anything about communication devices or anything. And so I kind of had to, in my own limited communication through eye blinks, tell them, yell at them to say, write it down, you know, because I would go through the letters and then they would start to name letters and then they'd say, oh, wait, what was that letter before that next letter? And I was getting so frustrated that I was like, get a dry erase board, write it down. And, and then they also were able to understand that I was saying the same words and phrases a lot. Um, things like pain, uh, tr you know, change my position, suction me, poop, you know, those kinds of things that were my most basic needs. I had them write those down in dry erase marker on my hospital door, which was made out of glass. And so they would go through those words first. And then if it wasn't something that I needed that was from my own basic list of, of needs, then I would spell it out to them. But it was um, definitely a process. I'm, I'm looking at the picture on your Facebook page uh, with the door and the words on it. And it like part of me thinks it's the most interesting thing. And then, then the other part of me, it just my heart breaks because like I think you even posted something like what would you choose to communicate if you're limited to just 25 words or phrases right right and, and I can't even imagine when this was happening um, were you thinking with your speech path brain where you're like okay there has to be a reason and there's rehab and we can go through this or were you were you able to say that cool comment collected or was it a little bit more like oh my gosh yeah. What is happening? I'm too young and too, like, healthy for something like this to happen. You know, it was, I was in survival mode, to be honest with you. Um, there were certainly days where I had my dark times where I cried and I screamed when I could scream and lamented, you know, the, the fact that this was happening to me. Why me? But I kind of, I've always been a pretty positive person. And I think that, you know, seven years ago, I went through a, a divorce, which was the hardest thing I'd gone through in my life at that time. And I remember at that time, there were days where I didn't want to get out of bed. And every morning, I would just, I had this personal mantra that I would say, if this is the worst thing that happens, you have a really good life. And that was what became my mantra again in the hospital. And every morning, I would tell myself that. And... Honestly, 
the, a lot of the doctors that worked with me at the first hospital that I was at, they didn't have a lot of experience with Cambre, and, and hence my, my advice to people to you know, seek other opinions if you don't know what you're doing, or I, I shouldn't say no, don't know what you're doing, but if that's not your area of expertise. But they told my parents that I would probably never walk again and that they consider the need for long-term care. So in my mind, I didn't know if I would ever walk again. I, I, did, I didn't ever think that I would never talk again because most of my communication limitations were because of the ventilator. Mm, and so okay. I didn't think, I was hoping that I wouldn't be on that forever. Um, so I guess that my, my mind didn't go there. But that's something that when I go and speak to university students and to other professionals in the field, you know, I, I do what the first part of my presentation is, is about resilience. And I did a lot of research on resilience because people used to come in and, and say, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know how you're doing what you're doing. I would just give up, you know, I would be in the fetal position and I would joke and say, well, trust me, if I could get my body into the fetal position, I would be in the fetal position. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's not an option for me. I need people to move me in every position I want to be in. So... I basically, you know, tried to stay positive. And one of the things about being a resilient personality is not that you don't ever get down and you don't feel bad and you don't cry and you don't have pity parties for yourself. People who have resilient dispositions are those that are able to get up and, you know, I mean, metaphorically speaking for me, but to go on and to keep hoping for better things and one of the things that I that really helped me was I had a quote that I'm I've always been into really inspirational quotes. And on my Pinterest page, one of my occupational therapists happened to look at my page and she noticed I was into inspirational quotes and she printed off one of my quotes that said, You've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. And I had that quote hanging on my hospital wall for the 100, 103 days I was in the hospital. And every morning when I woke up, um, you know, my first thought was, oh my gosh, I'm still paralyzed. I'm still in the hospital. But I would open my eyes and I would see that quote. And for me, it's, you know, one of the things you have to do is find purpose in your trauma. And so that became my purpose that the doctors can't definitively tell me why I got Guillain-Barre, but my why is you've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. And I've become very passionate about speaking to not just graduate students in the field of speech pathology or other people in the medical field, but mentoring other people who have Guillain-Barre or other serious rare illnesses because, like I mentioned, my doctors didn't give me a lot of hope. But once I was finally transferred to acute rehab, they, had a, they assigned a peer mentor to me, a woman named Melissa, and she'd had Guillain-Barre three years prior. And she came to my room that first day and came walking through my room. And to me, she looked, quote, normal. And she was walking. And I just burst into tears because I thought, wow, if she can do it, so can I. You know? And I remember her telling me that when she walked in, I was still paralyzed in the bed. I was at that point able to be in a power wheelchair, but she said, you know what, Carly, you are further along now than I was when they finally discharged me from six weeks of acute rehab. And that kind of hit home with me. 
And then there was another day that I was in um, my physical therapy session and it was, you know, kind of in the middle of my stay when I was finally learning how to walk with a walker and I had braces on my legs and I was walking, trying to walk across the room, which was maybe 10 feet. And it was so hard. I had lost all of my muscle tone. You know, I, in my mind, I thought, well, once your body starts moving again, you're going to stand up and go. I didn't think about walking. Like nobody remembers walking, like learning how to walk. And right. I kind of joke and say, guess what? I'm lucky because I remember learning how to walk, you know, but it was hard. And it was one of those days where I was having a really hard day and I was on the verge of tears. And all of a sudden I heard someone say, I wish my son could do that. And I looked and it was the mother of another patient, a six-year-old boy who had Guillain-Barre syndrome. And he was diagnosed, I think the same month I was diagnosed. And he was still in power chair. And I was walking with a walker. And all of a sudden, you know, it hit me that there's always somebody who wishes that they are right now where you are. And that kid in the power wheelchair was watching me and wishing that he had braces on his legs and could walk with a walker and be in a manual wheelchair. And I guess that I had to keep going back to those, those thoughts. I had to go back to being at the first hospital where they told me I would never walk again and saying to my mom, mom, all I want is to be in a wheelchair. Like all I want is to be mobile, you know, because that feeling of not being able to have any volitional control over your own body is not a good feeling. And I, I'm, I've always been a very independent person. And I moved out of the house when I was 18 and always took care of myself. And all of a sudden I became this 46 year old baby who couldn't go to the bathroom, had to be changed, had you know, bathroom accidents. And it was humbling. And I just think that that's what got me through. you know. And it just, changed my perspective on everything. Um, you know, I remember being in a wheelchair and the first time my mom came over and gave me a hug when I was finally sitting up and I was able to put my arms around her and I started crying. And I said, I didn't realize how much I missed being hugged. Like I hadn't been hugged, you know, for three months. And I just, being in a wheelchair, I remember telling my mom, I, I feel invisible. Like people either overcompensate and like, you know, look at me like, oh, that poor girl, let me do something for her. Or they would walk right past me. And, you know, you have to remember people in wheelchairs are at a lower level. So even making eye contact, people look right through you. And I remember reading an article after I got out of the hospital about homeless people and how they often feel invisible and how they often miss that human touch. And... I was very, very fortunate that I had so much support while I was in the hospital. I have so many good friends. I have strangers that were helping me. It was almost a joke because I had people, like 50 people lined up outside my hospital room door. One of the first days I was there waiting to come and see me. And the nurses were like, wow, we've never seen this before. And I'm like, I, I don't know why this is happening. You know, and my mom's like, well, you must be a good friend. And I said, well, I know I'm a good friend, but I'm not that good a friend. I promise <laughs> I could do better. But people raised $40,000 for me for my medical care while I was in the wow. hospital, a GoFundMe. And when I got out of the hospital, 
you know, I read that article about homeless people. It was right around New Year's. And so I decided that I wanted to take some of my money and buy, I think we bought 30 meals and 30 blankets wow. and hats and went downtown Phoenix and gave these out to the homeless people. And more than that, what I wanted to do was talk to them and acknowledge them. And anybody that wanted a hug, I hugged. Otherwise, I shook everybody's hand. Um, you know, I did go back and get hand sanitizer because <laughs> I still have, you know, a compromised immune system. But I just felt like that made me feel feel good. And you know, I don't, I don't believe there's such a thing as a purely altruistic act. And I'm a testament to that because I I know for sure I got way more out of that experience than they did. And now I've been out of the hospital, like I had, this is my second New Year's Eve and I went and we did it again and it's become an annual tradition or it will become an annual tradition. That's awesome. Twice. So. Carly, yeah. I, I now know why you present at national and state level because mm -hmm. I am just enthralled in your, in your ability to retell everything and, and fighting back, trying to cry on this side. So I apologize if I just don't talk for a moment. No, no, no it's okay. <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, it's taken, I, I'm getting a little choked up, which is unusual for me right now because I just, on April 9th, reached the two-year anniversary of my diagnosis. And in some ways, it feels like it was just yesterday. In other ways, it feels like it never happened to me. And so I can talk about it now without crying, where in the beginning, I cried so much. And especially when I got to Barrow, um, where I had mm -hmm. acute rehab, because I fought so hard to get there. And I was so grateful for being there that I know I remember them you know, bringing the psychologist in and you know, talking to her, and I would just be sobbing and she'd be like, are you okay? Do you need medication? Like, do you think you need like, you know, some sort of anti-anxiety or antidepressant? And I was like, I'm crying because I'm so happy. Like, you don't understand like how happy I am to be here. So, and on that note that, you know, brings me back to like my presentation that the other part of my presentation, you know, I do talk about resiliency and ways to facilitate resiliency in your patients. Um, and I talk about signs and symptoms of the Guillain-Barre syndrome. But one of the things that's you know, most near and dear to my heart is documentation. That I've always been really obsessed with data documentation. I really feel like it's important to make sure that we can document progress. But as a person with you know, a chronic illness who is in the hospital for as long as I was, I, I can I have a personal interest in documentation because when I was at the, the first hospital, it was just an acute hospital setting. You know, it wasn't necessarily rehab or anything, but I was supposed to be getting five days a week of OT, PT, and speech. And, you know, I was at that hospital for 59 days, completely paralyzed, and nobody was moving me, like, on a daily basis. And... I'd say to my mom, you know, I haven't seen OT and PT in a couple of days. And my mom would try to contact them and they'd say, oh, you know, we're short staffed. Um, our priorities are initials and discharges, which is illegal, you know. Right. They obviously need to be providing that even if they're short staffed. But I, it was one of those things where I was battling just to stay alive at, you know, some moment. But when I would get the therapies, it would be inconsistent, like in terms of the frequency but also in terms of who was delivering those services to me because they didn't have a consistent team of therapists. So I would have 
a different person coming to see me whenever they would come. And so they didn't have a baseline for where I was before. So therefore they couldn't document progress. And you know, anybody that has ever worked in an acute care rehab setting knows that there are parameters that insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid use to determine whether or not they're going to approve that transfer to acute rehab setting. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't understand what was happening because at first the doctors were like saying, yeah, you know, you should probably at some point transfer. But when we would ask the insurance company to approve it, we kept getting denied. And thank goodness for my mom, she spent 30 years in the insurance industry. So she knows a lot about insurance where a typical patient does not know about insurance. Um, you know, I, I look at, you know, the elderly or people that don't have the knowledge that we have about insurance. And for me, even having a mom who knew so much about it, we, we kept appealing, 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 nothing was happening. And then finally, we realized that we are getting denied because of the documentation or lack thereof. So I have a friend who's a physical therapist, and she came in and she spoke to the, um, the PTs and OTs that were working with me. And she said, and, and my friend who's a PT actually works at Barrow, where I ended up with acute, doing acute rehab. So she knew. And she said, you need to document that Carly is relatively young at 46 years old. She has two young children that she wants to get home to. She's motivated to work hard. She can sit in a chair for up to an hour at a time. Um, she can tolerate, she will be able to tolerate three to four hours of therapy every day. Because without that documentation, I was not getting transferred. So as soon as they wrote all of that, I was my, my appeals went through, I was transferred. And I can tell you the day that, my um, social worker came in, my case manager came in as I was being transferred to Barrow. I remember crying and just, they were happy tears, of course, but it was such a relief to know because obviously we did a lot of research on Guillain-Barre while I was there right. and research documents that if you're going to make a recovery, I shouldn't say recovery, but if you're going to um, be able to make the most of recovery, you need acute rehab. You need intense OTPT speech, and you're not going to get better without it. You just aren't. And there's a critical period of time where you need to have those services because I know there are a lot of people that I've been mentoring that were not lucky and they were not transferred to acute rehab. They were transferred to SNFs, which is where my doctor is recommending that I should go. He was like, nope, you need to go to a SNF. I've worked in skilled nursing facilities before. There's nothing wrong with them. However, you don't get the intense rehab that you need. It's, it's a different type of facility for different types of patients. And so I just, I cannot say enough about, again, admitting professional limitation. If you work in a, a setting and your patients are trying to go somewhere else, you need to be knowledgeable about the, you know, the guidelines for what constitutes a patient that goes to acute rehab versus, versus a SNF versus long-term care, what have you. Because um, I've worked with patients since then who were transferred to SNFs for six months and then transferred to acute rehab. And I don't know what their recovery is going to look like. 
you make me feel like I need to go and text my former uh, manager, like rehab manager. Cause mm -hmm. I remember when I, I, I do home healthcare as well as the work okay. in the schools. And one of my first reports, uh, he sent it back about eight times and said, fix your documentation. This needs to be fixed. And at the time I was like, you not a speech therapist, you yes. don't understand. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like I need to write back and say, I get it. I'm so sorry. I know when we work with stroke patients, um, it's like a six to 12 month window is that window of most growth. Right. What, what was that window for, for Guillain-Barre? And then what is your new normal? So if normal previous was a hundred, are you at 99 where you were? Or are you 90 or where do you right. rate yourself at? You know, I don't know what the magic window is. All I know is that acute rehab is recommended for patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So for me, I, like I said, I was in the hospital for 59 days. So for two months before I got that acute rehab and I was able to essentially recover, um, someone else that I know, they like said, was in, was, in a, was in a hospital setting like I was for a couple of months, then transferred to a SNF for six months. So that's already eight months right there where they're on their back, not moving. And I have been very blessed genetically that I never had to work out prior to getting Guillain-Barre. I always had muscle tone. You know, I remember being pregnant and my doctor saying, oh, you have ab muscles still. I'm like, I have no idea why. <laughs> but I never had to work at it. But my muscles atrophied so quickly in the time that I was in that first hospital setting. I didn't see a mirror for two months because I never could get up to use the, the restroom. So I went to the bathroom in my bed. They gave me bed baths. Like I never got up. There was no mirror in my room. And by the time I got to acute rehab, the very first day I was there, they put me in a wheelchair and wheeled me into the therapy room that was covered in mirrors. And I started crying because I didn't realize how gaunt I had become. I mean, I was always a small person. I was only 106 pounds, 5'4", before I got sick. And I dropped down to 84 pounds. My arms were so, so bony and skinny. My legs were tiny. And it wasn't just that. My muscle was literally hanging off my bone. And it was so disgusting to look at that. I had no muscle tone. I had no fat. I looked so sick. And I was. But gaining that back, I mean, it's we're now two years post-diagnosis. And Anybody that looks at me would never know anything was ever wrong with me, but I know because I, my muscle tone isn't what it was. So I'm lucky that I had muscle tone to begin with, but I think that it's especially important for people that are not physically fit to start. Like they, in order to be able to move your body, you have to even have core strength and my core strength was shot by the time I finally, they, when they would finally sit me on the edge of the bed, it was such a scary feeling. I can't even describe it to you. It was, I was petrified. I had two huge nurses on the side of my bed, plus the physical therapist. And they're like, we got you, we got you. And I was like, no, 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 no. I was so scared that they were going to drop me, you know, 84 pounds soaking right. wet, but it was my equilibrium. Everything was off. Um, I, you know, I told you I had double vision in the beginning, but that eventually went away. But for the two months I was in my hospital room at that first hospital, it was a tiny room. 
So all I needed to do was look from like, you know, my bed to the wall in front of me that was maybe eight foot feet away. I don't even know if it was eight feet away, but that's not a, a, a distance to really be looking. And then the only other view I had was if they ever transferred me to a treatment, like, you know, x-rays or anything, they would have me in my bed and I'd be on my back and they'd wheel me down the hall. So I saw the ceiling. So when I finally got out into an environment where it was like distance, I, it was so blurry and I was so dizzy because I hadn't been using those eye muscles of whatever. And I'm not a, I'm not an expert on vision at all, but I can tell you that you don't use it, you lose it. And so all of that comes into play, you know, and because I had swallowing issues too, I, I, you know, I told you I was on the feeding tube, but eventually they, they wanted me to start eating again. And I was on a pureed diet and it was so scary to even have to eat again because I had aspirated at one point and I was so scared that I was going to choke and I was going to die. I mean, that was more, more than being worried about ever talking again or walking again. I thought I was going to die. You know, I, I coded twice while I was there because with Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, in addition to all your physical limitations, um, you know, it also affects in severe cases, your autonomic nervous system. So your muscles are everything for heart rate, um, respiration, um, blood pressure. So with Guillain-Barre, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes down. So my heart rate went up to like 165, 170. And so I coded at that point. Um, so I don't remember where I was going with that, but by the time I got to the regular, like the acute hospital and they wanted me to start regain my life, I had to, to learn all that again. I had, like I had mentioned, I had to learn how to walk. I had to learn how to eat. I had to learn how to breathe on my own again. Um, I, I was scared at night, like thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to stop breathing. You know, it was really, really scary. And I think that unless you've taken care of someone who's had a, a severe, serious illness, or you've had a serious illness yourself, you, it's hard to relate. And even when I finally started eating again, I remember like the speech pathologist, you know, kind of getting on me, like, you need to eat more, you need to gain weight. And I was still having nighttime feedings at that time. So I had a feeding tube the entire time I was in the hospital. But I was just, I was so nauseous. My stomach had shrunk. I was afraid to eat. There are moments where I would eat and I would start to choke and like, it would just throw me back, you know, set me back a little bit. But when I finally left the hospital, the day before they, they finally pulled out my feeding tube, which in and of itself was, oh my gosh, I didn't ever realize how they took feeding tubes out. I'd never seen it. But they, I don't, do you know how they take feeding tubes out? I saw them take an NG tube out of my sister once, but never uh, an actual G tube. Okay, so yeah, the NG tube, they, they pull that out, whatever. I mean, we know that. But the G tube, you know, going in, it was surgical procedure. So I thought, I'd, I don't know what I thought, but the doctor came in my room the morning before I left acute rehab and she said, okay, we're going to take out your feeding tube. I go, what do you mean? I go, how are you going to do that? She goes, we just go and just pull it out. Oh. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, get me some lavender to smell. I mean, it was just, <laughs> I was so scared. It didn't hurt. But the thought of it was like, oh, that's disgusting. But once she pulled it out, she goes, well, no wonder you were nauseous and you weren't hungry. Judging by the size of the flange they put inside you, it was too big. Oh, no. So she said they put the wrong size in, which makes sense now that I think back on it, because 
I was so skinny the whole time I was in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I had, they gave me child size everything. I had child size tet hose and child size blood, blood pressure cuff that it would have made sense that I would probably have needed a child size feeding tube, but that didn't happen. So I guess, I mean, what I'm saying is like, you just never know. And your, your patient knows their own body best. And I became so aware of my own body more than I ever have. And there were times that doctors and nurses would be arguing with me about things where I would, you know, I remember being on that catheter and saying, I think, I feel like I'm peeing. And they're like, that's impossible. You have a catheter. I go, no, no, I feel like I'm peeing. And then they checked and they're like, oh, you are. And sure enough, my bladder was like way too full. The catheter wasn't working, but they weren't believing me. Or like when I tell them, you know, I, I feel pain when you're pushing meds through my, um, IV and then they're like, oh no, you're fine. And they're like, oh, your vein collapsed, you know? So it's, I, I know people are always in a hurry, you know, because we're limited in how much time we can spend with patients, but it's so important that we listen to them. And for, with Guillain-Barre, you know, you're mostly cognitively intact. There were some times where I was sedated. I, I get that, but I remember being on a ventilator and I remember hearing the doctor tell my parents that I would never walk again. And my mom, bless her heart, she kept a journal. Actually, she filled, she filled two journals with information about what was happening with me while I was in the hospital. Because I had, at one point, I had eight different doctors that were seeing me. And I was on so many different meds. And every time someone would walk in the room, she'd say, what's your name? And what are you doing to my daughter? And she would write it all down. And... Without that, I, I don't think I would have remembered, but I was reading through the, the journal at like probably six months after I came home from the hospital. I was finally felt ready to, to see what had happened to, to me. And there was an entry that I, my mom had written that when the doctor said, it's probably never gonna walk again, you're gonna have to consider the need for long-term care. I used my eye blinks to communicate to my mom. And what apparently I said was, I don't want to be a vegetable. So I knew it was happening while I was on that ventilator. That so, is, oh, I'm sorry. I was say, you just have to be mindful that even if you don't think your patients can hear or if they're in a coma or they're on a ventilator, you don't know what they're hearing. And, you know, there were, there were lots of times where I found mistakes that were being made and, it's crazy to think about that with my plasmapheresis treatment, um, they had to put a port in my neck to do that. I remember the first time they put the port in, you know, I was still relatively with it because it was, you know, my first day in the hospital. And I remember them saying, now, before we give you the plasmapheresis treatment, you have to have an x-ray so we can make sure that the port's placed correctly. And so I had that port placed. They did five rounds of plasmapheresis. And then they took the port out because they're like, okay, you're good. You're going to get better. And then I didn't get better. They're like, oh, never mind. We're going to put the port back in. We're going to do it again. So I ended up like with 20 rounds of plasmapheresis when I was only supposed to have five to begin with. Wow. But they put that port in my neck three different times. The second time they put it in, the person came in to do the treatment. And I, when they came in and said, we're, we're going to do your plasmapheresis, I shook my head no, because I was on the ventilator. I said no, you know, shook my head no. And the guy said, you don't want the treatment? And then I shook my head yes. And he goes, I don't understand. Do you want the treatment? Do you not want the treatment? So I turned to my parents and I closed my eyes to signal I wanted to spell something out. 
And so they went through the whole alphabet and they got to X. And then they wrote down X and then they went through the whole alphabet and got to R. My mom goes, you haven't had your X-ray yet. And I said, no. And she goes, you can't have your treatment until you have had your X-ray. And here I am, a patient in the hospital on a ventilator who can't talk. Oh, that's terrifying. I'm having to tell someone that I can't have a certain treatment. And I know that happens more often than we care to admit. So again, like you just don't know and you have to assume that the patient knows more than you think that they know. Yeah. And, you know, just continuing to treat them with respect. But I guess that's, for me, that whole advocacy piece too is I was again very fortunate they had so much support and when I couldn't advocate for myself at other people doing it but I encourage the people that I do my presentations to to be an advocate for your patients and to know what they need and to know when you don't know enough to know what they need because you're going to be the one advocating for them so if you're working with a patient with beyond brain you've never never worked with a patient with beyond brain find out what the best, you know, practice is for that type of patient. If they need to go to get a treatment that you don't know about or a place you don't, you're not familiar working in, find out what documentation needs to be provided to make that happen for that patient. Because there are procedures for things. And if you don't know what those procedures are, you could be making the difference between life and death for somebody. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hunt, joined as always by Michelle Winter. Hi there, Matt. And Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? And Michelle is holding in laughter because I am wearing my red nose. Uh, May 23rd, it's Red Nose Day here at NBC uh, in the States. And I picked up my red nose this weekend and supported it and gave it to my boys, and they love it. So that's why I'm wearing it as much as I can. <laughs> so which day was was Red Nose Day? Uh, May 23rd. It's part of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Oh, it's coming uh, up. Okay. I have no good transition for this. How often should your kids be outside? As much as possible. As much as possible. Four to like, six hours every day. You read the article. Uh, this is coming out of 1000hoursoutside.com, and they reference it in the book Balanced and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children. Kids need to be outside as often as possible. Mike, as the resident executive functioning guru, what does outside play do for our children? Uh, it, it really it, it does a, a million things. So executive functioning skills are built from uh, interpersonal relationships and meaningful experiences, which you have when you are outdoors and you are learning cause and effect play. So outdoor play is imaginative play. It's not on a screen there for you, presented to you via touch or buttons. Uh, you're learning through experience. You're learning through trial and error. And overall, it's exercise. It's, it's blood flow. It's uh, natural serotonin, dopamine, all of the, the positive uh, brain chemical releases so everything that it's doing is is this is this is a this is so crucial for development and uh and you see it for example all the schools that cut recess time and behaviors increase and this is the it, this unstructured play is crucial crucial for for these ages one to to even 10 you can argue so there's really um what outdoor play does 
is it truly helps to build new neural pathways and build and strengthen the brain. There's a park up here, and Michelle, you'll find this interesting because baby speech science will be getting to this age soon. Um, Armco Park, which is the old AK Steel and something else, came together. And one of their old sites, they turned into a big park. And there's a playground that's literally got no playground equipment. It has a rope, like a, a hand over hand foot rope bridge over a small creek. There is a hand pump water thing and a giant, no joke, 10 foot tall dirt mound. And that is it. And kids probably love it. Oh my gosh. Like my son, love my sons love to bring action figures to go climb that dirt mound. They think they're adventurers when they're jumping on the fallen trees and crossing over the creek to avoid the quote unquote alligators, sharks, and flying barracudas, which I'm not sure how that works, but sure, whatever. Um, but uh, it's so much fun watching the kids just play outside. Uh, baby speech science is what six months old now he is 10 months old as of yesterday oh, i do pay attention <laughs> fourth of when july starts... it's so easy to remember. oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like tom cruise um when he gets old enough take are you going to be taking him outside a whole lot or how did have you guys figured that part yet or uh, we have already been taking him outside that kid has uh, been hiking he has uh, been in a bunch of different states we're planning to go camping um but that I, I want him outside. I want him used to it. I want him to know that that's the normal. You know, I think just like Mike said, there is um, there's a certain amount of risk taking too that I like about kids being outside because, like you said, they're climbing on a, a rope um, ladder or whatever it was, a rope bridge or up a hill, and they're they're learning to safely kind of measure what risk is and jumping off of things and. Um, getting creative with play because there's not a specific way to play with that environment. They just make it up as they go. And um, I just, the part in that article, Matt, that really stuck out to me is where they said statistics say the average child gets only four to seven minutes of outdoor free play every day. And with 1,200 hours a year on screen time. Yeah. So we've got some time that we can flex the other way. Come on. This is why I'm okay with letting my kids, my kids will ask me to play sometimes. And sometimes I'll just sit on the couch and say, no, you guys play, you guys figure it out, figure out why the dinosaurs are attacking the X-Men and uh, the robots are just watching. I want, I want to see where you guys go with it. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Coming up next week, Carly Stoltenberg part two. It's the part where I actually cry. That'll be on air. Michael, what do you got coming up in the next week in 60 seconds or less? Uh, that is a wonderful question. Uh, it's going to be a very busy week in the clinic. Uh, a lot of some, some of my students are getting ready for finals, so I'm preparing them for that. Uh, going to be going to have a lot of uh, a lot of IEP meetings coming up, wrapping up the school year. Uh, so it's going to be busy, and we have uh, and we have Mother's Day next weekend. So we have a oh, yeah, there's, right. there's a lot going on here. Happy Mother's Day, Michelle. Michelle, what are Thanks. you doing next week? Uh, hey, I'm, oh, I'm getting ready for the hippotherapy class that I'm going to. Hippo, not HIPAA. Got it. Hippo, yep. H-I-P-P-O. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not studying HIPAA, but that's all part of our jobs. Um, enjoying the outside as much as I can. <laughs> going to try to make sure my even 10-month-old gets outside more. And um, hopefully doing some more interviews. I just did one for the podcast uh, with some neighboring professions of ours. Awesome! We want you, the listener, to head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. 
email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call 614-681-1798 hashtag sspod make sure after this episode is done you hit the five stars on itunes and let us know what you love and if you're feeling generous head over to patreon.com slash mwh production up there i'm going to have a very special treat for a level when we go down to asha and it might include you me michelle and michael at chef mickey's you'll have to check that out on patreon.com slash mwh production our intro music today was let me pull it up so i read it correctly please listen carefully by jazard's license under attribution and share alike license the bump music was county fair rock copyright a john deku at soundcloud.com slash dirt dog music his wife is an slp so we like you and also our closing music tonight is the slow burn by kevin mcleod who is not the slp it's licensed under a creative commons attribution license and you're hearing it right now who knows kevin mcleod could be the slp that we know from our facebook groups i'm not 100 percent sure uh in the immortal words of janice wright when life becomes hectic and crazy uh, you want to be the oak but the oak will crack so make sure you stay the willow the willow will bend and return to form as strong as it was before for michael mcleod and michelle wintering i'm matt hot until next week so long everybody see ya This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.